You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Hi and welcome. You're listening to 3RRR's Radiotherapy. Professor Sharon Lewin, a veritable powerhouse of the medical community in Australia and internationally, is in the studio and she's going to talk about HIV, Ebola and all things emerging in infectious diseases. Meanwhile, we have a return of the team. Yes, they all were absent without leave last week, but they're back. Dr Anabolics is going to report on a recent conference she went to discussing drug and alcohol. She's going to deliver us the highlights of the conference. SK, after bugs from last week, which I've only just recovered from, is going to talk about Dying of the Light, a Nicolas Cage movie. Now, if it's anything like last week, buckle up, because it'll be exciting. Then there is Sigmund McZiff, who is going to talk to us about depression. It's a common term, it's used often, but mm, maybe we're overusing it a little bit. Well, there's all this and the wonderful Kent on panel here on 3RRR's Radiotherapy. You are no stranger to radiotherapy, Sharon. No stranger. I've been here before. Ah, good. So you're going to fit in really well. That's, uh, and we're going to come back to you. But first of all, we're going to do catch up and see what you two have been doing. Where have you been? I've been, I've been out there in the ether, Tom, and I've been listening to you. I've been following you, but from a distance. You have not. <laughs> okay, well, well in, in theory I have, yeah. Yeah, I've been at the conference last weekend too, so I'm sorry I missed missed you guys. I didn't, yeah. and I did miss you. I do yeah. miss you when I'm not here. But yeah. um, a very interesting conference, which I'll tell you about. But lovely to see you again, Tom. Mm. Man. Look, I've only got one little bit of catch up: um, frontotemporal dementia and criminality. Whoa! And uh, SK, you're going to need to come close to a microphone because I'm going to need to talk to you about this. So, are you there's a there's a, a report and a, and also an editorial in Nature on um, the patterns of criminal behaviour amongst patients with Alzheimer's disease and frontotemporal dementia. Does that resonate with you? Look, it does. I mean, certainly I've seen plenty of Alzheimer's patients who've been picked up for things like shoplifting, but in my experience, they've iner- inevitably just picked up an article and have forgotten to pay for it, have forgotten they've put it in their bag. So a lot of the so-called criminal behaviour falls under that rubric. FTD is a bit different because patients with frontotemporal dementia tend to be a bit behaviourally disinhibited and they Mm -hmm. can undergo dramatic personality change in a pattern that's been described as pseudo-psychopathic. So bad behaviours compounded by disinhibition can, in my experience, contribute to criminality in certain types of FTD, yes. Okay, well, you've just changed my mind because I thought it was a fop of a paper because they did a retrospective analysis looking through patient records trying to search for words that might lead you know signal that the patient had some sort of uh, run in uh, legally Um, and I've got to say in the patient cohorts that I see I've not. I've seen terribly disinhibited behaviour in frontotemporal dementia, uh, which often presents with you know sort of wild fluctuations and impulsivity uh, in behaviour, but not criminality. I, I thought this might have been an uh, an error in the way they did the analysis. Well, you know, criminality covers a wide variety of ills, and I've certainly uh, been referred people by lawyers for an assessment who have done something that uh, is considered out of character. You 
know, perhaps an inappropriate comment towards a young woman or a disinhibited sexual approach or an aggressive outburst in a public situation and somebody has twigged that perhaps something might be wrong with this person and has sent them along for an assessment. So often sort of those retrospective case records, the criminality may occur shortly before the diagnosis is actually made or in fact be a trigger for an assessment yeah. by someone like me. I mean, this is becoming, in terms of where this um, interacts with the legal profession, this is becoming a, a broader area, and we've talked about this some time ago, actually, about the defence of um, somebody's actions based on the fact that they uh, they had no other ability other than to do that because they were hardwired and they've used functional magnetic resonance imaging as a defence to say their brain is different, so therefore they're not uh, necessarily responsible, in inverted commas, for their actions. I mean, this is something that there's been two celebrated cases in the United States where functional magnetic resonance imaging has been brought to to bear in court to say, well, their brain is different, and, and there's the evidence for it. That may well be in relation to, to psychopaths. You know, if you get people who are psychopathic and you put them under a PET scanner, as a group they will be hypofrontal. Yeah. But does that mean that it's a biological condition that is causing them to be psychopathic or by virtue of their psychopathy do they indulge in behaviours that tend to end up with them having abnormal PET scans such as violence, drug abuse, risk-taking behaviour, receiving head injuries and so forth. So whilst a a PET scan or a neuroimaging finding might be uh, an explanation for behaviour, it doesn't necessarily excuse it in the setting of psychopathy. And I guess the balance that the legal system has to tread is the balance between protection of the public on the one hand and punishment for bad behaviour on the other. I mean, if you you broaden that discussion a little bit, you know, you can have that type of behaviour that your brain is fixed for and you can use it for good or you can use it for evil. I mean, if if we put most of the CEOs of the major corporations under a PET scanner, they would have the same uh, PET scan as possibly somebody who was using their psychopathy for evil. Well, look, I guess there's two patterns of uh, disturbed frontal lobe function in, in uh, <laughs> bizarre behaviour. Somebody who's a CEO, you know, they may well have psychopathic traits. They may lack mm. empathy for the needs of others and so forth. But in, in terms of other measures of their frontal lobe function, their ability to plan and organise and yeah. take high-level decisions taking into account a multiplicity of uh, information factors you know arguably they're functioning at a very high level and in that setting uh, the psychopathic traits are more part of personality rather than as a result of a head injury or a disorder as such the certain personality traits enable them to do what they need to do yeah. we've made the same point in the past on this show in the in terms of politicians yeah mm. of course at that level even in those groups you can't rule out the um, possibility that high level uh, of alcohol um, is uh, imbibition is also playing a role because a lot of those guys drink a lot of booze they do and again it becomes a chicken and the egg thing uh, most of the behavioral oh, effects of of alcohol, by the way, are due to alcohol's preferential inhibition of frontal lobe function. So when you're walking into a pub and having a few drinks, to some extent you're checking your frontal lobe at the door and you're setting yourself up for a whole range of behaviours that we do see in disinhibited frontal lobe patients. Impulsivity, aggression, poor decision making, poor insight, lack of empathy for others, poor risk assessment and so on. Mm. So alcohol and uh, impaired frontal lobes is a very bad combination and Mm. one can result in the other, of course. All right. Well, I tell you what, we'll get we'll get into the show because we've got a fair bit to get through. We're going to come back and talk to Professor Sharon Lewin. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio Three Triple R FM in Melbourne, Australia. Now, Sharon, 
you've changed jobs. I went to get in contact with you and I rang the wrong place and then found out, my God, you've, uh, you've, you've really come up in the world. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know about that, but I, um, yes, in September last year I was um, took on a new position as the inaugural director of the Peter Doherty Institute for Infection and Immunity. Yep. Um, and uh, that's a, a new institute uh, in Parkville. It's a joint venture between the University of Melbourne and Melbourne Health mm. and uh, brings together about 700 researchers, clinicians, scientists that are work, all working on infection and immunity. Mm. And and so that's based in uh, at the ca- Parkville campus? Parkville is a new uh, 11-storey building on the yeah. corner of Royal Parade and Grattan Street. Okay. Uh, it was a joint venture between, um, you know, investment from the Commonwealth State Government and the University, a spectacular building, yeah. uh, a spectacular resource for Victoria and Australia, actually. Right. And so what's the, what's the, the, I mean, that's a lot of people to manage and organise. I mean, what what's the main themes that are being, of research that are being done at the Institute? Yeah, uh, it brings together a lot of established groups. So there's a big group of researchers that have always been based at the university. There's a huge um, diagnostic facility that's been in Victoria for a long time called the Victorian Infectious Diseases Reference Laboratory. So we have these laboratories in across Australia that have super specialised in managing and diagnosing infectious diseases. And then we have um, clinicians that work in the area and people that track infectious diseases across the state and also have a role nationally and regionally. I think we work in all infectious diseases, but there's some really strong strengths there are in influenza. So we have the WHO Reference Laboratory on Influenza, one of only five laboratories across the world. Very strong interest in HIV, of course. I've worked in that area for a long time. Many other groups as well working in HIV. Viral hepatitis, hepatitis B and C, um, tuberculosis, Ebola. Interestingly, you need to manage specimens that are potentially infected with the Ebola in a high security lab, something we call a level four lab. Yes. And we have the only level four lab in Australia, which was only just finished about um, 18 months ago. Point of order, point of order, Professor. What about Arl? Oh, of course. Point uh, Henry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, Arl um, also has a PC4 lab, but they work on animal. They work in animal systems. They're not able to do the human diagnostics yeah. that we yeah. require. If someone comes in with query Ebola and the specimen is, is highly infectious, yes. you need to manage it in a certain way and you have to meet certain criteria to diagnose a human condition, which Arl... Yeah fabulous facility as um, uh, Paul uh, mentioned based out in Geelong been working on emerging infectious diseases high security lab done some wonderful discoveries there but largely animal based work so we'll come back to that actually because I think that that's that's probably an area that I I certainly have a a broad interest in is emerging infectious diseases the infectious diseases that are jumping from animal populations into the human population but tell us pricey for us because yeah I mean you, you are a celebrity. Uh, I mean, anybody that's shaken hands with Bill Clinton, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I mean, instant celebrity, right? Instant right. celebrity. Yeah. I mean, you know, if I was going to, yeah. Anyway, uh, so that's all I've done. Yeah. <laughs> like Just that's all. You, that's hand. all you've done. But what? What? So what is is happening in the world of HIV currently? Well, I think the big news in HIV, and there's been lots of big news stories over the last 30 years, but the really recent news is our new um, tools to prevent transmission of HIV. So um, a few years ago we discovered that if people 
With HIV, uh, on antiviral treatment, it reduces their infectiousness by 96%. So mm. being on treatment for someone infected with HIV can dramatically drop tr- transmission. But the real excitement now is around um, something called PrEP, or pre-exposure prophylaxis. It's a bit like taking the pill. People yeah. that are uninfected with HIV who are at high risk can take antiviral tablets and it reduces their risk of acquiring HIV by about 80%. And this was discovered about four or five years ago um, in a clinical trial. It was a um, you know, high-level publication and um, people really weren't sort of sure how what this meant for the general population but there were two big studies just reported in February, one from France, one from the UK, basically showing that in high-risk people, um, uh, if they take a tablet a day, maybe not even every day. You could just take it around a sexual event, actually, two to 24 hours before sex and a few days after. You reduced your risk of getting HIV. So this wouldn't be something that you would take every day if you had high-risk behaviours? Yeah, 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 yeah. You I could. mean, the, the studies have been designed dif- differently. Probably the best thing is just to take it every day. Yeah. But um, people worry about the compliance with that, I yes. guess, cost, maybe toxicity. And this French study had a really interesting design that if you were anticipating yeah. having a sexual um, uh, encounter, if you took this tablet two to 24 hours before sex and for a few days after, you still reduced your risk of acquisition. It raises a whole lot of really interesting yeah. issues about how we're going to implement this. But it's the, the data is really convincing. I imagine in uh, uh, illicit IV drug use, this, this is not really going to have a significant impact because the the compliance with that population of taking a preventive therapy would be low? Um, Well, uh, in people who inject drugs, um, we know what protects them from acquiring HIV. It's clean needles. And that has been working for years. We've been doing it for years in Australia. We have uh, clean needles available to people and it works. And the prevalence of HIV in people who inject drugs in Australia is really low. Many countries haven't adopted that. But it would work the same in people at risk. But really for people who inject drugs, clean needles and we we make it available, harm minimisation. Sharon, for a high-risk population who might be anticipating a sexual encounter... If they're motivated enough and conscientious enough to want to take pre-exposure prophylaxis, why would they not simply use barrier contraception as an alternative means of preventing transmission during that sexual encounter? Yeah, um, well, they do, but it's pretty hard to do it day in, day out, all the time. We know that. So condoms prevent the transmission of HIV. We've known that for years huge amounts of um, education and in these trials still education and condom use is relatively high but people don't do it all the time human behavior you should um, understand that <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah sure but it requires a certain amount of uh, commitment to take pre-ex- pre and post-exposure prophylaxis for several days so i'm thinking the sort of people who might be motivated to go to that level of intervention to prevent transmission are more likely to be motivated to use barrier contraceptives as well yeah i think barrier contraceptive raise a whole raises a whole lot of other issues um in sex basically and we know even this is a group that are educated to use condoms they do use them but we know people don't use them all the time so what the studies showed that 
even with that and good condom use, the addition of those drugs still really makes a difference. And in fact, what was really interesting was that the number needed to treat was about 12 or 13. So 12 or 13 people that take pre-exposure prophylaxis to prevent one infection is pretty effective. Yeah. What would happen, uh, you mentioned payment for those drugs, because would the PBS cover preventative treatment like that? Has that got to that stage? That's the um, real um, devil in the detail. No, it hasn't yet. The only country that have licensed PrEP uh, is the US because the government doesn't pay for the drugs and the, each individual insurance company is now working out when they will pay for it and some state governments are paying for it. Of course, in the Australia, you know, um, uh, with the PBS, which is fantastic, where, uh, where our government will pay for drugs as long as they're, you know, really significantly cost-effective, um, it hasn't yet gone to the PBS, and it will raise a whole lot of issues. I think similar to what um, I was asked before about, well, we can just use condoms, for example, and, and it will be about the cost-benefit. But this number needed to treat about 12 or 13 makes it pretty cost-effective. Mm-hmm. Other countries like the UK and France that have similar pricing structures to us for drugs are going through this as well. Um, I don't think PrEP will be for everyone, but for high-risk people, you know, it seems to really work now let's move then let's move on to ebola and what recently happened in africa so that outbreak we ebola's been sort of uh in africa for for some time but this was something a little bit different this outbreak in the way it spread initially yeah, the scale of Ebola uh, in the recent outbreak, which was in West Africa, it was absolutely unparalleled to what we've ever seen before. Ebola was discovered in the mid-70s, always largely in Central Africa. Yeah. Small outbreaks that would... The biggest outbreak ever was about 400 people, and it would fizzle out. Ebola actually is not easy to transmit, yeah. and it's a virus that makes you very, very sick very quickly very different to HIV, where you can transmit while you're still well. So in Central Africa, there was a lot of familiarity with the illness and a lot of, you know, rural villages knew and were familiar with the concept of isolation. And each little outbreak tended to fizzle out. Biggest outbreak, 400. This outbreak, um, the current estimates were around 25,000 yeah. with close to eight or 9,000 deaths, so unparalleled. Yeah. What, so why did it reach that scale? Um, the thinking is largely because of where it happened. It happened in um, Guinea, Liberia, Sierra Leone that have really, really poor health infrastructure, recent civil war, you know, poor um, uh, governments that haven't... have. have have been decimated by um, war and and poverty, I guess, and that was probably the biggest driver. There was also some local practices around burials that were an ideal setting for transmission of Mm -hmm. Ebola. So it was, in fact, nothing around the disease or the or the virus suddenly becoming super powerful or evolved to become super transmissible. It, there's no evidence of that at all. It was really around healthcare systems and poverty. And our, uh, the international response to that outbreak, uh, and even within Australia, the, the, the political response, seemed to be completely misplaced and uh, counter to what you would require to actually bring it under control. It was shut down the borders more than any other response. What's your thoughts about that? Yeah, I think there were certainly some real problems in leadership um, globally and locally. 
and uh, certainly globally, there was a there was a real delay with the WHO recognising the scale and scope of the problem. I believe the local physicians on the front line, largely working for Médecins Sans Frontières, you know, really were worried, and there was a local delay locally from WHO officers and centrally, and the scope of the problem was underestimated. The response in Australia is is, is sort of different. I mean, we never had anyone here with Ebola. But um, the response both here and a little, and also in the US was slightly coloured by um, hysteria in a way. There was sort of this nervousness around the one patient hitting our borders. Or If we had one patient with Ebola come to Australia, we're very well equipped to look after that person. Of course, we have to have high awareness, make sure they're diagnosed early, isolated, etc. But we have all the things in place. It's not, a, it's not an easily transmissible virus. It was disappointing, I think, that our government took a, took a long time to decide what to do. And in the end, we didn't pl- make much of a contribution to the global response. And I think that much of that is because where we are, West Africa is a very long way away. In the end, the UK, the US and France really invested and, and really scaled up the response. And that was about putting people into West Africa to con- help control it locally. Yeah, it was about contributing to global um, uh, global strategies to address it through the WHO, which, of course, our government actually did do. Yes. It was about sending people there. There was a lot of nervousness within, within Australia to do that, but the UK, US and France all sent a lot of people there. It's around training with diagnostics. It's around um, develop. It's also around investing in the science and develop. You know, there's been de- developing new antivirals, new tests, new vaccines. That had to be done very, very quickly. Okay. We didn't play a big role in that. So there was this massive exponential increase in the number of cases, and we were reading that it went from 2,000 to 3 to 5, 7, and then everybody was terrified that there'd be hundreds of thousands of cases and it would be unable to, to prevent the spread worldwide. And then there seems to have been this dissipation in numbers and the number of deaths has diminished. And what actually happened? Was it a successful response locally and contributed to by international aid? Or was there something else? What what actually transpired? Yeah, definitely it was a consequence of the global response because if you there was an investment to raise awareness to stop local practices or educate and engage communities to stop local practices like burial, you know, hands-on burials. They, a number of, um, of centres were established that could manage low people that were not so sick but in the community and uh, that happened by local training and investment. That's what made the difference and also improved awareness of how to manage someone with Ebola. In the, at the beginning, the stories that were coming out, there was a horrendously high mortality of around 70%, and people were thinking maybe this is a much higher strain, a higher um, pathogenic, more severe strain of Ebola. But if Ebola is managed well, which, which largely means you know a, a, a management of an acutely unwell person with appropriate fluid balance, etc., the mortality looks like it's more in the range of 20%. So education about, about management, availability of intravenous fluids, availability of equipment, to stop transmission and also the establishment of these centres that were in the rural areas, not all in the capital cities, all, all made definitely made a difference. Okay. I mean, at one stage there, the CDC was was promulgating a number of 1.6 million from the middle of 2014 to January 2015, and we never really got anywhere close to that. Well, you could when you can actually mathematically model infectious diseases 
pretty accurately exactly as we heard before if you know the doubling time if it takes 10 or 20 days you can actually do predictions of course there's a range of error in there and the number from the cdc was based on modeling of what had happened and if there are no interventions and there was an error margin around that now then they also did models that if you put in interventions like if you could block 70 percent of new transmissions what would happen and they were pretty accurate about that right and that's what actually drove the predictions of how much money you needed to invest because you know there was if you could block 30 percent or 70 percent of transmissions what would be the outcome several months later and that's what really advised who about the scale and amount of money needed to intervene to stop transmission perhaps without those figures you don't get the response that you need perhaps you need to be a little bit alarmist or a little bit worst case scenarioist to in order to get the response from i actually don't think it was alarmist that's what would have happened if there if there hadn't been a response so in relation to that issue one of the things i think we we all perceive is one of the challenges um in the world going into the future is that these diseases that 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 jump from one species to another that we are naive for so humans have had no exposure or it's not been uh, anything that would cause us a disease and all of a sudden it does and it becomes a plague so this is something in uh, in the future we're going to face more and more frequently i would suspect um, now you you know you can react to it or you can plan for it, and clearly planning for it's going to be much better than reacting to it. Uh, what are your thoughts on how we need to structure our systems to be able to cope with what will occur again? Yeah, there's sort of a whole lot of levels to that. There's um, once a new illness is apparent in a human population, how, what are the systems we need to respond to that? And mm. that needs to be strengthened um, mm. in identity. And, you know, and, and I'll give you some examples where that was done really well. So um, SARS, yes. you may remember, was in the uh, uh, in the sort of mid two thousands. First cases in Hong Kong very rapidly spread to um, Singapore and Toronto, and within a you know, several weeks that virus was identified, it was fully sequenced, um, we knew how to isolate people and the, the outbreak lasted several months and we haven't seen a case of SARS since then. So we do have systems in, in place that alert people to new infectious diseases. One real problem is where it happened. So it ha- happened in Hong Kong, Singapore and Toronto, all with very, very good healthcare systems. But if it happens in West Africa or maybe in Papua New Guinea or in countries that don't have that sort of surveillance, we're in trouble. So I think one lesson is that we're a global community. We have to have those inf- that resources and infrastructure everywhere so it's and you know this sort of um you know um doves tails into australia's response in our global in our um international aid budget you know it's in our interests to have robust health care systems in 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 poorer countries particularly neighboring countries Mm. um so there's the alert system and then there's the capacity to respond which is what we saw with who this time which was perhaps not optimal and you know are there are there ways that we can construct funds that can create a much better global response but if you go back a bit you know why are we seeing new infectious diseases let alone you know diagnosing that first one and responding to it and that's really complicated, but it is tied up with urbanisation, climate change, with deforestation. You know, all of those things are what's 
changing the surrounding ecology. And, that, that, and that's one thing with Ebola and, and viruses that are related to Ebola. You know, if, they're, if, they're, if they're, their natural host previously was way out in the jungle and you're changing the environment and it's coming closer to capital cities. This, this Ebola outbreak was the first time it was in a capital city, for example. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a much bigger issue around... Um, you know, climate, and then also international travel, exactly. No international travel as well, so no one's really immune. It's all our responsibility. And therefore, I think Australia as a very wealthy country needs to make a contribution there. One of the other things that I thought was really interesting was that we suspended the normal um, uh, regulatory processes in terms of developing a vaccine or therapy. So it became ethically okay not to go through the rigorous testing to get a medication or therapy into the market um, quickly. Normally that would take many, many years, but there was a lot of discussion around, well, hang on, we haven't got time to go through the ethically, you know, the, the proper regulatory system. What are your thoughts there? Is it that that because again, I think that that needs to be a pre-debate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I don't think there was any change to the ethical um, mm. criteria or the standards for safety at all. They were yeah. just the same. Just it was done faster. So it raises the issue around bureaucracy and managing to get through the bureaucracy. The debate with Ebola. So just um, for your listeners, you know, there were a lot of Ebola vaccines in very advanced development, but hadn't yet gone into clinical full-on clinical trial. Yeah, and usually. Usually when we test a vaccine or a new treatment, we like to compare it to a dummy drug, a placebo. And um, there was a debate there whether it was ethical to have a placebo-controlled trial yes. when people were dying in front of you. And that's still unresolved. <coughs> and I think um, many experts believe you still need the placebo because just because you have a new drug, it doesn't mean it works and you still have to answer it with the same processes. What was different in Ebola was the speed that it, this was done. There wasn't any corners cut here. Yeah. It was just done fast. Okay. I mean, I've, I've had that circumstance in the patient population I deal with. In fact, wrote a paper um, which was instigated by a patient who basically put to myself and an ethicist that uh, he had the right to take any drug he liked given that there was 100% mortality with the disease he had and it was up to the medical profession and science to figure out how to study that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It actually, it, it, you know, this came up in the early days of HIV as well when we mm. didn't have good drugs and there was mm. the community came up very strongly saying, you know, they're dying, they want anything yeah. that might work. So it, this has not been solved by um, the debate around Ebola. And um, interestingly now, much of the studies are on hold because there are fewer and very little infections. But I agree, now's the time to mm. get this straight. Mm. Mm. Sharon, sorry to take us away from Ebola, but I have a pressing question to ask you of a very Uh-oh. serious nature. <laughs> I'm a big fan of The Walking Dead, and I am aware that recently the CDC in the States did model, they did some modelling on how a zombie outbreak, a zombie virus <laughs> outbreak, would, would spread in America. Are you aware of that work? No, I can't say I am, but I'll uh, read it up quickly. Okay. Well, what, what I was not, not clear on is whether they studied the sort of shambolic, uh, lumbering zombies like you might see in neurology outpatients or, <laughs> or whether they were studying the rage virus zombies. But I was just hoping you could shed some light on it. Sorry. I'm sorry, Sharon. I'm just sorry about that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we normally don't have him in the studio when we're having somebody really important. But, yeah, anyway. Yeah, 
uh, always. Thank you, SK. But look, um, we probably we could talk to you probably for about five hours, but we probably better wrap this up. But it's uh, mind you, sorry, yeah. mind you, the arts and things like that. These are places where ethical questions are yes, often yes. debated and asked. You know, this the response. This is yeah. where you do. But it's. Uh, I think you know. I'm I'm so pleased that you are where you are. <laughs> I've watched your career right from the time you were a, a young medical student, and I've got to say you're you're one of the three people. When I was thinking about, there are three people I thought these people are going to be extremely successful, and two of you have become extremely successful, <laughs> and the third one's yet to prove himself. <laughs> but uh, you certainly, uh, you know, I, I, it sort of it gives you a warm glow when you you know you know people are in those positions who you implicitly will trust. Uh, that can that have the, the intellectual grunt to make the decisions and, and do the work. But uh, we haven't finished with you. We're going to bring you back into this show. Because there will be another infectious yeah, disease or an outbreak be, somewhere sometime. We will be discussing this, so you'll be our roving reporter. Hate to reduce you to that level, <laughs> uh, given the given the senior level of... Uh, Steady, careful. Yeah, that's right. But um, uh, it's been wonderful having you in, so thanks for coming Delighted. in. Delighted. Happy to come any time. Thanks. Three... Ah, we're still prattling on here in the studio. There's heaps of excitement. It's just like having Bill Clinton in the room. Um, Now, we're going to talk about depression. Overused term, maybe not. Common symptom, absolutely. Big health problem for our society, absolutely. And uh, you're going to tease this apart for us. Yeah, look, I think that uh, the term itself has been rendered meaningless by overuse. And uh, it's used in everyday parlance. And uh, so much so that when somebody says, I'm feeling a bit depressed, that can be light years away from what those in clinical practice are dealing with in terms of the severe clinical depression that uh, that uh, comes to our, our rooms and our hospitals. So we've seen a burgeoning awareness of mental health issues uh, in society and a much greater recognition of the existence and impact of mental illness and and in association with that, a greater willingness to have treatment for these conditions. Beyond Blue has been at the forefront of this, along with um, the Black Dog Institute and Headspace. Initiatives like this are really, I think they're, they're, they're bringing mental health issues more and more into the, uh, uh, into the space where people are recognizing these things and dealing with them appropriately. And the media then takes it up. And in, and in, commu- in the community at large, there's a much greater level of discussion. Now, with all of this focus, there hasn't, in my opinion, been an associated increase in the sophistication of understanding of depression and, to a lesser extent, anxiety. And many are still very much in the dark about when they or their loved ones should seek treatment for their conditions, when things are urgent, and perhaps even more so, what they should do when things are are spiraling out of control. And I think to come back to the to the, what I wanted to talk about today, which is that the, I think we're hamstrung by terminology. Now, if we look at DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of, uh, of, of Mental uh, Conditions, which is the, sort of the guide that is used most widely in the world, in its latest iteration, DSM-5, we have a number of different diagnostic categories where you would, where, where depression is at the forefront. And so, 
Perhaps the, the main one is major depression, and uh, we can have major depression with or without various add-ons. So it might be with or without psychotic features, with or without anxiety, and then in terms of its duration, and in terms of its symptom uh, profile, the most salient features. Then we've got a thing called persistent depressive disorder, which in the past was called dysthymia, so sort of long-term, low-grade depression, something that's been present for a very long time but insufficient to make the diagnosis of a major depressive disorder. And then you've got a thing called an adjustment disorder with depressed mood, which is a sort of uh, depression which is not of itself sufficiently severe to be called a major depression but occurs clearly in association with a life event which is particularly stressful. So in years gone by, people didn't talk so much about these conditions, but they talked about a thing called endogenous depression and another thing called reactive depression. And Tom Mann, when you were a medical student, you probably remember those terms being used. I still use them. Still use them. <laughs> and, and, and there's some merit in still using them. So endogenous depression refers to the depression which came from within. There was not really an an, an external factor which explained the onset of the depression. And it, w- people have known about this forever, uh, uh, since the time of the, of, um, of the ancient Greeks. So it was a serious depression with lots of biological associations, like a diurnal variation. Now, a diurnal variation is there's a change in the severity of depression throughout the day, and most frequently the people with endogenous depression would feel at their worst in the morning. as they were facing the day. And then the depression might, in fact, lessen in intensity as the day progressed. There would invariably be a particular type of sleep disturbance with classical early morning wakening, and people with this severe endogenous depression would so often say, I wake up at 4 o'clock every morning like clockwork and I can't get back to sleep. There would be a thing called anhedonia. There'd be no pleasure from the usual things that gave people joy in life, appetite change, and very frequently suicidal thinking. Now, this was in contrast to the reactive depression or exogenous depression, which is that sort of depression which comes on as a clear and understandable response to life events. And that's a depression which is somewhat different in quality and symptom profile. So tends not to have the diurnal variation, so people don't necessarily wake up feeling at their worst in the morning. It often doesn't have the early morning wakening, but it might have sleep disturbance, which is perhaps a little bit more um, waking up, having difficulty going to sleep, and then having broken sleep throughout the night, and without the other biological features that we see in endogenous depression. I find the dichotomy a bit uh, artificial, to be honest, McSiff, because over the years I've seen plenty of people who have presented with you know, severe depressions in the way in which you've just described an endogenous depression, but those symptoms have been precipitated by a life stressor, and we know Absolutely. that major life events are risk factors for depression. So to carve it up into uh, phenomenological or symptom-based divisions based on relationship to a life but stressor and, seems and, a bit and that false. And that was why in the 70s and 80s there was this shift from that dichotomous model to... to um, um, mild, moderate, and severe. And that really, that that was what we saw change in DSM-3, DSM-4, 
and now in DSM-5. So there's, there, we've moved away from that endogenous to reactive. We've moved away from Tolman's approach to, to a, a modern a, approach. Um, <laughs> to, to, to a more modern <laughs> approach. So, but, so. but nonetheless, if you have a pre-existing personality, and if, if the simplest way to put this is to say, if you're a cup half full person or a cup ha- half empty person, that is, if you're <coughs> cup half empty, you have a propensity to um, not necessarily looking on the, the brighter side of life. Um, it, it's more what you don't have. or And you may have a much lower threshold to triggering an episode of depression with that personality type. Is, uh, does that ring true or is that... Just I, I, I think the waters. No, no, I think there's some truth in that, but but it it's it doesn't necessarily it's it's a separate issue I think okay. by and large from from this whole focus. So I think what we need to do, and I think we've perhaps gone a little bit too far in terms of moving away from the from some of the strengths of the of the understanding of endogenous depression, and I think that we've we've lost a detailed understanding of of a condition which I think is at the forefront of some sort of delineation, and that it's, it's the term called melancholia. Yeah, love that term. And, and th- that, there's a, a renowned Sydney psychiatrist, Gordon Parker, has written and spoken about this very eloquently. And this is the form of severe depression where life loses its flavor. This is Churchill's black dog. It's the heavy, cloying, bleak, pervasive misery that robs one of all sense of joy, life, energy, desire, and sense of future. It's an illness that can't be resisted or overcome by willpower. The sufferers have a form of paralysis. It's sustained. And in the absence of treatment, people die. <clears throat> they either die by their own hand or by inanition. By they, they, they will die if this condition is not treated. And it's the sort of condition, it's the type of depression, the treatment of which is absolutely mandatory. Yes. And, uh, and people don't get better. You know, a, a small proportion of people will get better, will recover over time, but the majority of people will be, stay very, very unwell. And people need... This is the sort of treatment that needs medication, and if medication doesn't work, it often needs ECT, electroconvulsive therapy. This is a really severe condition. Just update us about ECT. This is a therapy that's oh, I had a checkered history. It's been somewhat controversial uh, over many, many years. But it's, it, ECT was first trialled, what, 50, 60 years ago? I think even well, well before that. Right. Um, it's been around in thirties. Yeah, it's yeah. been around for a very long time. And, um, and, and have we got any further understanding on why that should work? Well, much of the thinking relates to the, the postulate that it has an effect on, uh, at the very least, the the membranes uh, in the uh, the intracellular membranes and <clears throat> about the transmission of bioactive uh, of uh, the neurotransmitters yeah. and it along with antidepressant medications are said to in simple terms to improve the availability of uh, of biogenic amines okay. at various parts of the brain so and so but but do we know exactly how ECT works? No, we don't. What we do know is that it's become very much modified in the way that it's administered this uh, these days. It as I, as I've said in the past um, one flew over the cuckoo's nest did for psychiatry what Idi Amin did for international <laughs> diplomacy. Um, uh, ECT got a very, very Great bad film. rap. Great and film. and it, 
it's and some of that was well deserved because of the way that it was given it's a completely different treatment these days perhaps one thing that people often don't understand is that it's not the electricity has anything to do with the actual benefit benefit it's the convulsion and correct unless somebody has an epileptiform response to this very tiny dose of electricity that's that's used you don't get the beneficial effect it's the, it's the convulsion in fact it was back in the 1930s in the old um, asylums that uh, this was first recognized by people who had very severe schizophrenic illnesses and and untreated epilepsy and it, it became um, a common discussion point that uh, you know yeah. somebody would get better, their mood would improve when they had a fit, and they were had a, they were having uncontrolled seizures. Yes. And this is what first highlighted people said something something about convulsive activity which resets things and makes people's mood improve and improves their schizophrenia. That's where it was first. So, used. so in physiological terms, what a convulsion does is it, it's the um, unregulated release of neurotransmitters causing nerves to fire off and uh, discharge in concert which then leads to the convulsion that requires the production of the neurotransmitter to be upregulated in the brain but it's a very crude non-specific um, response and so it's not just it's not a very sort of uh, strate- uh, strategic uh, elevation of, of a single neurotransmitter it's everything uh, that gets upregulated at the same it's, it's time it's the biological equivalent of when your windows computer hangs uh, rebooting yes pretty much exactly yeah so but that's a very small part of the treatment of the depressions yeah. the, the in terms of those severe, whether you call it endogenous depression, whether you call it melancholia, that's a very small part of the treatment. But everyone who has that sort of depression, everyone who's seen that sort of depression knows that it urgently needs to be intervened with. What I'm suggesting, along with I think a number of others in the field, is that we need to separate out melancholia from other depressions. And those other depressions are those which are, by and large, most responsive to psychological and psychosocial interventions, cognitive behavior therapy, supportive psychotherapy, interpersonal therapies, some psychodynamic therapy, mindfulness-based therapies, lifestyle modification, diet and exercise. And those they need to be administered in an appropriate fashion by by skilled clinicians and so what where are we we've got an understanding that mental health issues are widespread we need to recognize them first and foremost and i think we're doing that well and high praise to beyond blue and the other organizations who are involved in the sort of the dissemination of the ideology and the understanding of the existence of these conditions but the overuse in the vernacular of the term depression makes it hard I think, for people to read the signs. Mm. So sometimes we don't see the, the wood for the trees. Mm. Sometimes we don't really know, is this someone who really needs treatment? Is this someone who, oh, this is just a, a minor thing that we can, you know, it'll, pa- it'll, it'll uh, settle with the passage of time. We're, we're now really in a position where we need to be more sophisticated. We need to know better what to do. I mean, we've got this, this terrible thing hanging over our heads at the moment with this, this German co-pilot, and we, we seem to understand that it's likely that there was some form of mental illness operative there, but it wasn't detected or didn't, people didn't know. So we need to be able to shine a light Mm. a little bit more effectively. So we need to respect 
protect science, clear the waters, and ensure that all of us, all of us who have some form of mood disorder, have access to the timely provision of evidence-based treatment. I mean, that's that's the issue here. Is our system uh, is a little bit um, ungeared towards really providing. Uh, patients and people just the community with access to those sort of services and that you know it's not seen as a primary investment there's also another problem that people who have uh, clinically significant endogenous type depression often have uh, an enormous amount of um, social withdrawal they don't tend to present they don't they often blame themselves for their problems and they don't go out and seek seek help actively Mm. often you know the, the illness itself affects the approach to treatment so it's a very very difficult thing to get around you're listening to a podcast from community radio 3 triple r in melbourne australia uh you're listening to 3 triple r's radiotherapy and we're back to talk about dying of the light nicholas cage yes tall man nicholas cage has released some stinkers during the yes, course of his career yes. I mean, national ghost Treasure rider and ghost rider <laughs> leap to mind and ghost rider too that was yes. a sequel <laughs> and revenge of ghost rider <laughs> the, the the latest uh, sort of excrescence that he's used to crown the, the dung heap of his career was uh, a film called dying of the light which came out last year so it was a major release but didn't do very well at cinemas at all and in fact this is a film tall man that uh, got a rating of nine percent on rotten tomatoes which aggregates positive critics reviews so it wasn't well received at all that's under sex in the city too i think (laughs) (laughs) saying something and dude where's my car (laughs) (laughs) nicholas cage in this film uh we are led to believe is a top cia agent you know is the most decorated agent in the service and uh he's diagnosed with a terminal illness which we're led to believe is uh, frontotemporal dementia which we'll talk about excellent and uh, as a result of this diagnosis he's ordered to retire and uh he's retiring with work left undone about 20 years previously he was tortured by a terrorist in the middle east and there was a, a, a mission launched to rescue him and it was assumed by the cia that this terrorist died in the rescue mission Nicholas Cage has remained convinced that he slipped through the net and remains alive, so he, he didn't want to retire with that business unfinished. So he goes rogue from the agency after he's kicked out, and he tracks down this terrorist who tortured him uh, many decades ago. We learn at the start of the film that uh, Cage has been riding a desk for six years. He's not been a field agent for many years. But he's still doing very high-level analytical work for the agency. You see him with multiple computer screens open with spreadsheets of data that he analyses. He notices a mild tremor and makes allusion to some memory problems that he's noticed, which leads him to consult a neurologist, who, again, I thought was miscast. It was just a good-looking, intelligent man with <laughs> no obvious physical deformities or motor tics. Hang on, no physical deformities. <laughs> Give me a break. <laughs> but the neurologist orders a PET scan, and ultimately uh, Nicholas Cage gets diagnosed with frontotemporal dementia. Mm-hmm. And the, the neurologist warns him about certain symptoms that he might experience, including uh, mood swings, unreliable sensory perception, whatever that is, and a tendency to overreact in certain situations. Do you know, I mean, again, the symptom of the, the tremulous hand leading to that diagnosis, that I, I, I can't remember uh, a patient ever leading with that symptom complex 
leading me to make a diagnosis of frontotemporal dementia. The most common symptom that I find in the patient population I see is that they become, they're noticed to be emotionally labile and they will cry during ads on, you know, if there's a puppy on the TV. Mm. I would say universally that is the most common symptom I would see and it's not that... That, and it's a change. It's a dramatic change from where they were to that symptom complex, but not a tremor in the hand. But they're beautiful little Labradors. <laughs> Stop <laughs> crying. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm with you, Tormund. I've never seen a patient present to me with a, a tremor as a symptom that's ultimately been diagnosed as FTD. But this emotional lability, this tendency to overreact to mm. emotional stimuli is very common. Mm. And we do see some evidence of that in the film, like Gage when he's having an, an argument with his boss he sort of goes off and it's a career limiting argument he's eventually kicked out of the agency but you know to me it's not beyond the bounds of what somebody might do if they feel strongly about a subject that has deep personal meaning for them they they go off at their boss but we see evidence where he mildly overreacts at times and is a bit volatile we also see some evidence of other symptoms He, he asks a friend at one stage to meet him at a bar and he refers to the bar initially as Diamond Tuesdays, when he'd actually meant to say Ruby Tuesdays. And there are variants of frontotemporal dementia where you can present early with word-finding problems and in particular word substitution with similar but different uh, meaning words. He's also unable to remember the location of the bar, so he has to prompt himself by looking at the menu to see where it is. So this is somebody who's supposedly been diagnosed with a dementing condition that tends to be rapidly progressive, which does affect the frontal lobe and its various functions. And we made allusion to some of the things that the frontal lobe does at the top of at the top of the hour. It's a key determinant of our personality. It allows us to control not only emotions but other behavioural impulses. Mm. But really it's the part of our brain that separates us from our lower animal cousins. It allows us to exercise judgments to reason, to think through solutions to problems, to generate hypotheses, uh, to think abstractly. And if uh, Nicolas Cage in this film uh, had a frontotemporal dementia, I would expect that those high-level mental functions would be significantly impaired to the extent that he could no longer function. Mm. His employer, the CIA, had had no sense that his work was in any way impaired prior to him seeing the neurologist so he'd been functioning at a level which was sufficient to escape the scrutiny of his employers or any feedback from his colleagues and when he leaves the agency because the agency discovers that he's seen a neurologist and the diagnosis becomes disclosed at that point we're asked to suspend disbelief and imagine that uh, somebody with high level impairments in judgment planning decision making organization and abstract thought can then independently in the absence of all of the resources that the CIA would otherwise have made available uh, to be placed (laughs) at his disposal to go rogue and independently conduct an intelligence operation to track down a terrorist on the other side of the world and not only do that but then to execute a high-level plan to exact his revenge upon this terrorist. Uh, I've seen this before in films. Uh, The the series of films Saw, for example, the, uh, the evil... Mm. genius in saw was supposed to have a frontal lobe tumor which again you would expect to have uh, impairments in those high level domains but
but we're left with a man who could conduct uh, intricate, devious plotting to kill people. It just doesn't fit with somebody with a frontal lobe problem. Mm. You mentioned uh, lability as, as a presenting symptom to men. Broadly, there's two groups of patients or two patterns of symptoms that emerge in frontotemporal dementia. You can get a behavioural variant where people can and do engage in criminal-type behaviour or impulsive behaviour or disinhibited behaviour that brings them to the attention of authorities and certainly makes itself known to family members through personality change. And then there's the language variants that present with word-finding difficulties primarily there's a subtype of the language variant that's referred to as semantic dementia where people lose the meaning of words Mm. and the case that oliver Sacks describes in his book the man who mistook his wife for a hat was in fact describing a case of semantic dementia where the patient could no longer differentiate between uh, various objects in his life so if you're looking for a particularly uh, bad and misleading example of what frontotemporal dementia might be uh, dying of the light is, is, is an example. It, it's really an unnecessary plot device. It didn't add anything to the film, yeah. and uh, even without it, it would have been a bad film. Did he get the guy? He did get the he guy, of course. So was Never it, let the it, truth ruin a good story. Was that justification? Was that what meant to say? Because he's dying, he's allowed to kill people. Is that the justification? Well, it was a revenge flick, basically. He was tortured by this guy, he had part of his ear cut off in, on a videotape for propaganda purposes and things. So he's, he's harbouring a grudge, and there's some suggestion during the film that he's got post-traumatic symptoms as well. You see him having flashbacks. But it was really a revenge flick. And was it sad about your judgment that you actually went to see Nicolas Cage movie? Well, I didn't. I illegally downloaded it. (laughs) 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 All right. (laughs) Too much information. (laughs) Uh, Look, great show, guys. Um, And thanks very much to Sharon Lewin for coming in to the studio to talk about ID. Uh, We'll reconvene. Great segments. uh, And it was an interesting Sunday morning discussion with you people. But uh, we better hand over to the scientists who are kicking the door down and uh, of course we'll be back next week at week not weed at week so uh, listen in then la grosse radio pour des grands enfants triple rfm big radio for big kids is that right all oh, right okay You've been listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. For more podcasts, information about upcoming events and our live stream, please visit our website at rrr.org.au.